So if you're, uh, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word uh, to the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is just before Job, which is just before Psalms. Um, as we go through this, as it's, it's a narrative, uh, I find it a little bit more helpful to, to read the text throughout the message. So we'll be doing it in that way. So I'm going to pray for us uh, before we begin, but please um, have your Bibles uh, open and ready. We'll be in Esther chapter 2 uh, this morning, Esther chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, give us wisdom, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit today, uh, that I would proclaim truth clearly. Uh, Lord, thank you for a book like this that, though sometimes difficult, um, is good for us. Uh, your word is good for us. Um, and so, pray that you would, uh, again, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word today. Uh, we pray this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in reading and, and studying through this chapter of Esther, uh, for me, there were um, conceptions of this book that I had, and as I've read and studied through the whole book, and others that I, I know that exist out in, in the general world, the, the, the Christian world, that were really shattered uh, as I studied this. I, I remember as a kid, really just thinking that Esther was the story of this brave woman who stood up for the people of God, that that's, that's kind of the extent of the story. And there is truth to that, but honestly, that's a pretty whitewashed view of this book. This book is not a fairy tale. Folks, this is not a Cinderella story of, uh, where, where there's a sweet romance and this beautiful uh, young girl is an example for young girls to follow all their lives. There is a great deal of ambiguity and compromise when it comes to morality and religious purity in this book. This is not a book of romance, but one of really difficult times that exposes the reality of living in a fallen world, especially of living in a world where a despotic ruler can do whatever he wants with you. You are all his property. It's a challenging book. And the whole book in this chapter calls us to look at our lives and how we are living in the midst of the kingdom of this world. As I work this morning to, to try and draw out some of these ideas, we're going to continue to see, and throughout this entire book, continue to see God at work, working through the circumstances and details of life in the kingdom of Persia. He does so Get, get this, he does this through flawed and compromised people. And in that, the beauty of his grace and of his power and of his sovereignty are amplified. And that, I think what that does is that engenders in us confidence in our God and his working amidst our own failings and our own compromises. So as we do this, let's walk through this text and see the unfolding of God's working that, that, that I, I hope is, as we go through this, gets easier and easier to see. But also we're going to see in this a, a bit of a, an unknown unfolding, kind of a why is this happening. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 through 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. So this chapter starts in a pretty typical way of narrative of after these things. Now, not all of these, really very few, if any, of these things are actually spelled out in the book. But when we look at the rest of the chapter uh, and, and continue on, it has been about three years, actually, since the end of the previous chapter. It's been about three years since Vashti was removed from being queen. And the text tells us that at this point in time, the the king remembered her. Now, that does not mean that all of a sudden he just thought about her and, oh, oh, yeah, remember that lady Vashti? It's actually more that she came to mind with some real feeling, maybe some regret over what he had done, or some nostalgia about who she was. But the reality is, is as he remembered it, he also remembered, I can't do anything about it because I made a rule and a decree that can't be changed. So I think that contributes somewhat to, to what I, I think in here. There's, there's a bit of depression on the part of Ahasuerus. Because also in these intervening three years, the king had experienced some significant military defeat. Um, you, we remember first chapter, this massive parties, all kinds of stuff. Some, many think that that was to get a lot of support because he was about to invade Greece. And he suffered defeat at the hands of of the Greeks. That inept campaign depleted the treasuries and likely caused his subjects to look at him a little bit askance at times, Um, and he didn't handle it well. One commentator wrote and was quoting um, a historian, said, Herodotus describes the king's life after his military defeat as one of sensual overindulgence. He dallied with the wives of some of his officers, sowing an anger that led to his assassination in his bedroom in 465 B.C. He didn't handle the things that weren't going well very well. And taking all that into account, it's easy to see why the the, the suggestion of these young men was not only given, but why it was accepted. You see, they proposed a contest of sorts. Uh, Maybe you could call it a draft, uh, a conscription uh, of those who meet three criteria in the kingdom. They're young, they're beautiful, and they're never married. Young, beautiful, and never married. And from that group, however large it was, and almost certainly, it doesn't tell us, but if we take into context all this, it was hundreds. I'm sure it was in the hundreds. The new queen would be chosen from that group. And so this would, in some sense, kill two birds with one stone, with one decree. It would continue to, well, feed, not really satisfy the king's lust, but also provide a queen to replace Vashti. And so it absolutely pleased the Hashuaris, but it also shows us, I think even further, we, we begin to see more and more how much this king is not actually in control. He's not in control. It shows how others are doing the leading, even if not in name or title. Here, young men, young counselors are actually telling him what to do. Or more precisely, someone who's not even mentioned in the text. Think of Proverbs 16:1, the plans of the heart. Belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Or 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 
Or 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, Ahasuerus is not ultimately in charge here. Even though to all in Persia, he's their king, he's their, their sovereign, the, the reality is, is the Lord is at work. Even if he's not mentioned, even if he appears by all accounts to be absent. And so then comes a turn in the story. If you turn to, to verse 5, look down at your text at verse 5. We're introduced for the first time to some non-Persians in this story. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we were introduced to Mordecai, a Jew. Now Mordecai, that name is a Hebraized, so it's a Hebrewified, however you want to say it, version of the, the, the Babylonian name Marduka, okay, which is in re- reference to the Babylonian god Marduk. Okay? And this brings up, actually, that, that name, that, the idea that it's Hebraized, brings up a pretty cool discovery, because we've talked about some of the historicity questions that people have had on this, and, and I don't agree with those questions. I think they have good answers. But one is this, is a, a pretty cool recent discovery. A tablet discovered, well, not that recent, discovered in 1904 at Persepolis, another Persian royal city, contains the name Marduka as a Persian official during the early years of Xerxes, or Ahasuerus' reign which corresponds in time to the setting of the Esther story. Although it may have been too common a name to identify conclusively the Marduka of Persepolis tablets as the Mordecai and Esther, the correspondence is striking. And especially when we consider that Mordecai lived in the citadel of Susa and not in the outskirts, it probably speaks to the fact that he was some type of an official in the Persian court. Now, his name being Mordecai does not necessarily mean for us, it doesn't mean that he was a worshiper of Marduk, just like if a girl's named Venus doesn't mean she worships Venus, okay? Just just understand that. Uh, and, And having a Persian name is fairly normal at this. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all given Persian names or Babylonian names as well. But the one thing it does give us a clue to is a bit of his status. Though he's a Jew, there is comfort level. He seems pretty comfortable with a Persian identity. And as, you know, if we look back at his heritage, his Jewish heritage, he's in the line of Benjamin. Okay, the line of Benjamin, a son of Kish, which tells us one thing. Some of you might pick up on this. He's related to the first king of Israel. Saul was a son of Kish. He was a Benjamite. Now, with that, though, the fact remains that Mordecai is still a foreigner. He's still um, a stranger to strange land. And verse 6 makes that status very clear. And the NASB, I love how it translates it because it, it, it draws it out even more. It says, Mordecai, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Do you notice a running theme there? 
It's exile, okay? That is what he is. He is an exile. He is part of this exiled community. By nature of his lineage, he is a stranger in a strange land. And that's true even if it doesn't seem all that strange to him because it's really the only land he's ever known. But he's identified by the author as one of the exiles. And so no matter how comfortable he may be in that land, he's still actually part of a beleaguered people, of a people who are not of the full status of everyone else in that sense. So that's Mordecai. And then we're introduced to another, to Hadassah, also known for us as Esther. Now, she is the only person in this book who is given two names. To whom two names are revealed. Hadassah means myrtle and is her Hebrew name. Esther is Persian and either means star or it could be related to the the goddess Ishtar. Now, how is she described? You know, after she is identified as Mordecai's cousin, she's a younger cousin as he's bringing her up as his own daughter, she's described as a young woman who was in possession of a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And going back to the NASB, which is what I read when I was younger, I still remember the way it put it. It says, now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. She was a supermodel in many ways. Okay, she was proportionate, she was striking, she was gorgeous. Now, here's here's the interesting thing. The way a person is first described in Hebrew narrative gives us a clue as to what is going to be important in their story or what is going to be uh, uh, a very determinative factor in the story. And so with this, we can expect that Esther's physical beauty is something that plays a factor in her role in the story. So then, the next verse, verse 8, comes as no surprise. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther's taken. She's taken to be part of this harem under the custody of Haggai, one of the king's eunuchs. Now, does the use of that word taken mean she, this was by force? Well, in a sense, almost certainly. But in, in the ways that I doubt she volunteered, but the text doesn't tell us whether she went willingly or not. You know, for many, this was a way to elevate yourself out of poverty. You're in the... You're in the lap of luxury for your entire life if you're pulled into the harem. And actually, that word taken, even though it seems to imply compulsion, the same word is used of Mordecai taking 
Esther as his daughter in 2.15. So I don't, I don't think we can use it as this forceful just pulling out and grabbing a hold of. Perhaps it's more likely that in saying that, if, if you look at the text, that other women were gathered, that, that many were actually really happy about this opportunity, and she was taken, maybe it at least tells us that there was a bit of conflict in her. She is, as I said, the only character identified by two names. Then one commentator wrote, the implication is that Esther is caught between two worlds. Part of her identity is rooted in her Jewish heritage. Part of her identity is tied up in her Persian culture. She's torn. There, there, there are two worlds that pull at her. And folks, this is something that we have to wrestle with here. One, the, the author does not give moral judgments on, this, on much in this book. Now, we can deduce some things and, and do our best to make conclusions by good and necessary inference, but there is nothing definitive in this book given as statements of that was right or wrong. And the way the story that is, is related to us, I, I do believe it's fair to say that Mordecai and Esther were, were fairly assimilated as, as exiles. But there was still conflict between Persia and being part of God's covenant people. And I think we have to learn from this. Throughout the ages, God's people have lived in tension. We live with the tension. And the tension is, is that of faithfulness to who we are called to be, a distinct people of God. Or to capitulate and give in to the expectations and pressures of the prevailing culture. Now, how often have we heard the term or the phrase, you've got to be on the right side of history? I don't care, people saying, I don't care what that ancient book says, you better be on the right side of history. And, you know, we know that teens... Teens struggle with this, with what it looks like to be faithful to God in our world. Will they stand firm on biblical standards in regard to sexuality or, or just their view of humanity in general? You see, this culture is doing everything it can to get us, as the people of God, to abandon faithfulness to Him. So our question is, will we count the cost of faithfulness? As adults, Folks, consider how you conduct your business. Does your Christian identity guide you? Or do you just go with the flow of the ethos of the company, even when that ethos pushes the boundaries of how a Christian is to operate? Or maybe in how we view politics, and therefore others who may think differently than us. One commentator wrote, every Christian, like Esther, finds himself or herself in situations where one must choose between doing what is right and doing what is culturally acceptable. Between acting with integrity and compromising in order to, to, to seize an opportunity between living consistently out of one's identity in Christ and living for whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may approve what is acceptable, what is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, are we going to give in to, oh, we might be canceled? Or are we going to stand firm and count the cost of faithfulness? As believers, we live in this world, okay? That's, that is a simple fact. It's where we are, but we are not to be of the world. Okay, many of you have heard me say this. It's the idea of a ship in the sea. The ship's place is in, on the sea, but the sea better not get into the ship or you're going to be in trouble. Folks, we should be different, consistently different. We are not to have two identities. And you know, something, um, something that makes this Esther story difficult at times, or more difficult even at times, is that it sure seems that Mordecai told Esther to live in two worlds. Because he commanded her, don't make your heritage known. Don't tell anybody about who you actually are. And I think that idea is pretty recognizable for us. You know, just keep your heads down. Don't make a big stink. Let your, you know, let the way you work or let your life just be the witness. You know, don't, don't be out there about it. It's all too familiar. But here's the good thing, I think, about this story. Is that though it's, it's a bit ambiguous what's going on with Esther because the, the author doesn't make judgments for us. Another wrote, simply knowing that the hero and heroine of the book face the same dilemma we encounter signals to us that God is not indifferent to the challenge. Having a book like this tells us it's not just this, oh, this is, this is how everybody always lived and there's, there was never a struggle with it. No, there has been. There's always been a tension that we have to learn how to deal with. You know, we still have to consider how our lives and how it's, I think it's almost indisputable that most American Christians aren't all that distinguishable from their unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. It's just not. Not in our dress, not in our vocations, not in our, our choices of what we do, or our divorce rate, our, our porn usage, our, our premarital relationships, and more. There's not that much that's distinguishable. Except for maybe we show up here on Sunday mornings when they're doing yard work. So those are, those are questions we have to wrestle with. Now, now, the story of Esther continues, right? It continues. She does well. She, she pleases this, this Haggai, this, this, the, the king's eunuch, and she actively wins his favor. So she's moved up to the best place. You know, she stayed in this harem then for a year or so. And the author tells us of, of the excess of the kingdom, Okay, the excess of the kingdom of Persia uh, in, in this, the, the treatments of beautification that these women underwent. Six months using oil of myrrh. I, I'm not even totally sure what that's for. And six months with spices and ointments because I'm not a cosmetologist, so I have no idea. That's, that's never any, been any of my desire to know anything about. But the idea, I think, in, in reading some of this stuff is this was, 
This intense regimen was used to remove blemishes, make the skin soft and fair, and make all of these women more and more uh, kind of closer, to, to make them closer to the ideal of beauty in the Persian age. And so then one by one, the women in, these, in this harem would have a night with the king with a chance to become queen. And if they weren't chosen as king, they'd be, or chosen as queen, they would be moved to another harem where they'd live out the rest of their lives. They couldn't go home. They couldn't find somebody else to marry. They would live there in luxury, but absolute obscurity. Well, let's look now down at verse 15. 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So at this point, we are now four years after Vashti was removed from queen. We're four years later. And Esther is showing herself to be not only beautiful, and, and one of the things that you can see, I think it's in um, verse, yeah, the end of verse 15. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Okay, think back to how she was described. And it doesn't say of all who knew her. It was just simply by her beauty, she was winning favor. So she showed herself to be beautiful, but not just beautiful. I think also she showed some wisdom. She sought the advice of the man who knew the king better than anyone there. And she looked for his preferences. And the night she was called, she won grace and favor in the king's sight more than any other. And she had the crown put on her head. Now again, folks, this is not a fairy tale. Okay, There's no need and no desire to get in the details. For one, the author does not. But this was compromising for sure, okay, to put it lightly. A Jew, a a young virgin woman, was with a pagan Gentile king. There is nothing there in keeping with the morality of God, with the morality of his people, with what he calls us to, to live in holiness. But still, the author makes no judgment here. He doesn't condemn. Now, he certainly doesn't laud her either. So we have to be very careful not to turn Esther into some massive role model because how is she one here? Oh, hey, girls, just use your beauty to gain control over powerful men. Uh, No, no, that's not a role model. Or in displaying how compromise works and the end justifies the means. No, that is not a role model. The account of Esther's life is not simple. It's complex. Get this, just like every one of our lives. 
We don't have simple lives. And I love this about Scripture, partly because it it calls out our wrong idea about what Scripture is. As a great children's story Bible puts it, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. This is not a book about heroes. It is, as another commentator put it, an unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. Think about this. Abraham lied and doubted, but God worked his providential grace through him. Moses became impatient, but God still worked through him. David committed adultery and murder, but God still worked through him. Throughout Scripture, God's people morally compromise, ethically fail, and persistently sin. Yet, amazingly, God providentially and graciously continues to use them for his redemptive purposes. And the same thing is true for Esther. She is culpable for her failures. Her compromises cannot be excused, downplayed, or explained away. Yet, in the larger context of the book, this young girl's moral compromises are used by God to deliver his people from potential extermination. Here's good news. God works with sinners. He does. Sometimes it's immediately recognizable, and it's it's not even quite immediately recognizable here in Esther until we continue to read the story, and other times it's even more of this, what in the world is going on with this? How is God using this for His glory and for our good? How is He working all things together for good for those who love Him who are called according to His purpose? You know, look down at verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people uh, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Why tell us this? Why do we need to know this? How does this, how does this at this point in time in the story, if, if you only know chapters 1 and 2, how does this have any bearing on this story at all? Well, one, I guess we have to hang on and keep coming back to find out the rest of the story. But look for clues in just even the way the author wrote. It was recorded that Mordecai helped save the king, but you know what? It was never celebrated or recognized. Something that was pretty normal for somebody saving the king's life. And this little instance of oversight by someone will actually play a significant role as we move on. It may have utterly disappointed Mordecai at the time. We don't know. We're not told about his state of mind after he saved the king's life. But I think it will be one of those things that he will look back on and go, oh, (laughs) wow, God used that disappointment to work amazingly. He's going to see the hand of God at work. 
And folks, that's what this book shows us. It consistently and constantly displays the working of God, even without ever explicitly mentioning his name. And I hope we can take comfort from that. But more specifically, how we see God at work as he continues to hold on to those who have too often let go of their identification with him. How he continues to hold on to those who have compromised, who have made poor choices, who have not held firm and steadfast to the covenant. Folks, this is truth we can rest in because God is strong enough and his grace is powerful enough and he is big enough, as one said, to take the crooked lines of our moral compromises and to write straight his larger redemptive story. Thus, there is hope for us just as there was for Esther. You know, when we sometimes make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, He makes straight our crooked ways. And how comforting that is for us. Because how often have we all messed up? Maybe, maybe I could ask this. How often have you messed up this morning? But you know what? He will never let go of His people. We will never be snatched out of his hand. He loved and loves us so much that Christ died for us. He, he gave his son for us. We are secure in that. We are secure in Christ. Guess what? He died for our compromises. Because he died for our sin, for our moral ambiguity. He died for that. And listen, just as Paul addressed this in Romans, this is not a call to go ahead and keep compromising because he dealt with it. This is actually a call to praise God for his amazing grace, to, to, to rest in that, and then to strive by his strength to pursue greater holiness, to pursue less and less compromise in our lives. Folks, it's in this that I think we, a bunch of people who still sin, find hope. We find great hope. Think about this, just as, as Peter, Peter was restored after certainly, certainly, I'm sure he felt rather depressed, uh, rather like a complete and utter failure for denying his Lord and Savior three times in front of young girls. And yet the Lord held him fast. He showed his steadfast love. And he taught Peter the wonderful nature of grace and his steadfast love and the fact that he will never let go of his children. Folks, the Lord holds fast to his people, to his covenant, to his covenant people. He did it with Esther. He's done it with the people of God throughout history. He still does today, and he still will tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the reality that you do hold us fast. 
that you care for us, that you work all things for your glory and for our good. Even when we can't see it, Lord, would you take this, take this text, take your, your, your message to us today and help us to rest more in that, to see it, to have eyes to see more and more how you work in the midst of all of life and draw us closer to you to walk in holiness and righteousness by your grace and mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.